Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Program here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. And tonight's lecture is on minimizing fear. This is part of a Monday Night Philosophy series that we have here. It's been going on here for, for more than a decade um, I started Monday Night Philosophy uh, over 40 years ago in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, it, it was uh, designed to compete directly with Monday Night Football. That was my idea. Um, and uh, even though I've moved it from Madison to Manhattan and from Manhattan here to the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco over the years, football is still winning so far. We spent a lot of time actually being afraid of being afraid, um, in addition to actually being afraid. So it's very important, I think, to try to understand this part of our life and whether we can do anything about it, whether we can get some control over it. And there's a lot of people will give advice on fear, are going to say, well, manipulate yourself this way, think of it this way. If you just control your emotions in this way or you be mindful about what's going on, that kind of thing, you, you have a mental manipulation of the situation that affects your emotions a little bit. But actually, emotions don't work very well that way. And what I found is that the best way to have a big effect on your fears is to understand them, to really think about them, and what's the elements of a fear? Why is it that we experience this? What are the patterns in it? As you can tell, this is Monday Night Philosophy. It is about the ideas behind what it is that we're experiencing and looking for the patterns in it. So, what is fear? I define fear as the emotion caused by the anticipation of unhappiness. That's a very compact definition. There are three elements, but it's loaded with consequences. The first one uh, being that if we look at this clearly, the most important part of it are those three elements, emotion, anticipation, and unhappiness. Now, how can we change the way we experience life based on that understanding? First, let's talk about emotions. Our emotions, the patterns of our emotions in our life, are that those emotions are automatic mental responses, reactions to our experiences. They're automatic. If anyone says, stop loving this person, or, or, or stop being happy, or stop being afraid, or stop being unhappy, it doesn't work. You cannot just stop your emotions in their tracks and make them change. What you can do, though, is change the way you think about something, change another element of it. So although the first element of the three elements is emotion, we really can get a hold of that part of it and do something about it, about it. even though lots of people you know, may say you can play some mind games about it and stuff like that, but it's not that effective. You're kind of fooling yourself. And we do enough fooling of ourselves already. We really don't need to, to do any more if we're trying to understand things better. So... Let's leave that element on the side. It is an emotion. It's an automatic mental reaction we have. But let's look at the other two elements. One is anticipation. We anticipate. You have to anticipate that something is going to happen. In this case, unhappiness. So fear is not at the time that you're unhappy about what's happening. It's when you anticipate that something is going to happen that will make you unhappy. And therefore, that anticipation is a crucial part of what the emotion fear is all about. If you're actually in the event 
and things are not going your way, you're unhappy. You're not necessarily afraid that you're going to be unhappy. You're just unhappy. So that anticipation part, unconsciously, there have been different theories of how to deal with this. One that's a little bit more elaborate and and kind of um, subtle is Stoicism, for example, from ancient Greece. You just develop a Stoic attitude towards things. This will minimize your fears or bring them down a little bit. And that's that's true. Um, But but there are issues with that Stoical approach. Uh, Issues even greater with another approach, fatalism. So fatalism basically is saying... Don't anticipate anything. You have no control over life whatsoever. You have no control, therefore you should just go with the flow, accept whatever the universe hands to you. Um, Just believe that God is going to take care of you, or maybe your mother is going to take care of you, whatever that allows you to just allow anything to happen. And therefore, without anticipating what's going to happen, you can't be afraid. Now, for most people, not everybody, but for most people, This is a cure that's worse than the disease because being fatalistic does another thing. It throws the baby out with the bathwater because you get rid of all anticipation. You don't, it's not just your anticipation of unhappiness that goes away. It's also your anticipation of happiness. Now, the emotion caused by the anticipation of unhappiness is fear, but the emotion caused by the anticipation of happiness is passion. When people are passionate about what they're doing, passionate about their projects, passionate about the person that they love. That passion is because you're energized, you're, you're, you're made more active, more alert, more in order to enjoy the happiness that comes from what it is that you're passionate about. But it's also an anticipation. A fear also energizes people, which is, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later too. But the reason why it's not a total negative for most people is that it does energize you. So, but if you're fatalistic, the clear effect of being fatalistic is that you have very little energy to try to accomplish anything because you don't anticipate that anything is going to take place. So if we want to confront the issue about anticipation Fatalism will cure it, but it will cure it in a way that's worse than, than the disease of fear. And certainly, we don't want to get rid of our passions. That's really, you know, I mean, midlife crises seem to be all about that fears start to dominate our passions, and we try to get our passions back um, before it's too late. But in any case, that, that element of what's going on is important to understand because although you can attack the problem from that point of view, it doesn't work as well as attacking it from the next point of view, which is the unhappiness itself. So we're anticipating unhappiness. That's why we're afraid. Now, when we anticipate unhappiness, what, we're, what are we talking about? So I'll define unhappiness. Unhappiness is the emotion caused by the non-fulfillment of a desire. So again, we have an emotion. Can't do anything about that part. Again, three elements. Uh, it is the non-fulfillment of a desire. So you have two elements. One is that you have a desire involved. One is that it doesn't get done. Happiness is not the opposite of unhappiness. It is the emotion caused by the fulfillment of a desire. So we'll just talk about unhappiness for a second here. We have those two elements. If we are going to lower our fears, the way to do it most effectively is to 
not be so unhappy, not expect ourselves to be so unhappy, because that's what we're anticipating. So how can we do that? How can we get to an understanding of life, of the way that we live our life, about the patterns of our minds and how they operate, that allows us to lower our expectation of happiness, of unhappiness, I'm sorry. So, good example is the current crisis, okay, COVID-19. There are many ways of looking at it, and your emotional reaction to the situation is going to be based upon what you think about it. If you read about it and you read everything on the Internet, there's all kinds of different uh, pieces of advice about what's going on. If you believe from everything that you've read that it's, it's, it's not a hoax or anything, but it is, it's probably a lot like the common cold, it's not that really big a deal, then you're not going to be too uh, concerned about it. You're not going to feel that it's going to cause you much unhappiness, and so you're not going to be that afraid of it. So people will tell you all kinds of rules that you have to follow, and you say, it's a bunch of nonsense, I'm not going to follow the rules. If, on the other hand, you think that COVID-19 is going to cause um, something like five to ten times a worse effect than the flu usually does every season, then you have another reaction. You say, okay, well, people die every year from the flu. If it's going to be five or ten times as many people as that in the world, that I can deal with. It's, no, it's not enjoyable. Um, I'm, I'm upset about it. I'm concerned about it. I will certainly do some things to try to help make this a little bit less problematic. But your fear level is not that much. On the other hand, if you read all of the information about the Spanish flu from 1918, how it killed 50 million people in the world, and that is the way you're looking at it, that is the way you believe that COVID-19 is going to unfold, then you might even be paralyzed with fear, especially if you're in some of the high-risk categories. Uh, you're, you're, you're basically saying, this is a death sentence for me. Now, we're going to talk about uh, the fear of death a little bit later, but we're just talking about the fear of the virus. And uh, the effect of what you think shows how your emotions are going to be, the intensity of your fear, how much you have. And anxiety and fear is pretty much the same thing here. So that's... that's the virus point of view, and it's a very good example of how how we think about something really influences how we feel about it. If you're in your childhood, if you, you know, really enjoyed playing with a toy, and you were passionate about playing with this toy, and then you see this toy, and you have a certain emotional reaction every time you see it, oh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and when you're a little bit older, you see the toy again, and you, you have just a nostalgic feeling for it, but you don't get passionate about it because you don't want to play with it anymore. You're 14 years old and, you know, the, the thing that you enjoyed when you were four years old is no longer going to produce that pleasure for you. And the same thing is true if you're then an adult and you see the toy and then you see your own child play with it. Then in addition to the nostalgia of your own experience, you also feel how nice it is to see that the next generation is getting passionate about the same thing you did. So there are a lot of complicated emotions all about one little toy but it has to do with the context. What's the context? Um, and and how, how do we understand that experience? And therefore, how do we emotionally react to what we're doing or what we're seeing? So that's a little bit about the virus and how thinking about things is different. But another element of this, before I go into the actual kinds of fears and how to minimize them, um, is we're not totally averse to fear. As I was saying before, it energizes us, right? And if we are energized by our fears, um, 
we are a little bit attracted to them. As a matter of fact, we pay for people to scare us. Um, it's a very interesting part of our, our life, but we do pay for people to fear, scare us. Um, one of the things that the economist uh, said in summarizing Hollywood's effect on the planet was that, that Hollywood takes our fears, our dreams, and our nightmares and turns them into uh, movies with bigger budgets and better bodies. That's their analysis of thing, and, and, and we do pay Hollywood when they create nightmares for us. We pay them to scare us. Um, so you, you can be scared by horror movies. You can be scared by binge-watching Stranger Things. Um, you can be scared by um, bungee jumping. You can be scared by any, anything that is part of our entertainment that's there to arouse fear in you. But it's a kind of fear that is safe and protected. You know that you're not going to actually become unhappy by whatever it is that you're afraid of that you're experiencing. It's not too dissimilar to nightmares, as, as, as the economist pointed out. Because in our nightmares, we kind of tend to practice escaping from the things that we're really afraid are going to happen to us. And so in those nightmares, we're kind of trying to go through what makes us unhappy and experience them, but in a safe and comfortable environment, sort of like the Dolores Umbridges of the world are always trying to create for us, um, and, and, and to our dismay when it's in the real world. Um, so that part of fear is a very interesting part, because you'd think anticipating unhappiness would have no appeal to anybody at any time, but it does. And so part of what I wanted to talk about tonight was how the fact that when we anticipate unhappiness, we get a little bit of a charge out of it. We get a little bit of a jolt out of it. We get a little adrenaline charge out of it. And, and so there are what I call recreational uses of fear. And recreational uses of fear are this form of entertainment. It's not unlike recreational uses of poison. So you'd say, what do you mean recreational uses of poison? Well, alcohol, cocaine, heroin, crystal meth. We, we, the human race forever has always found ways to poison themselves um, that they then find entertaining because it knocks you out of where you are. It knocks you out of the experience you are. And you really don't want to be bored. You know, you would anticipate you're, you're afraid of boredom more than you are of the other things. Why? Because boredom is really going to make you unhappy, right? So, and what's more boring than staying at home and also being afraid of a virus? So, you know, there's a lot of problems going on right now uh, in our society. And then people are even saying, are we going to cause ourselves more problem by making everybody stay home than, than just trying to fight this virus? So it's a reasonable question to ask, uh, but it's really, really uh, effective to try to flatten the curve, as, as everybody knows, or as everybody doesn't know, but everybody should know. So um, it's just an entertaining part of our society that we would turn something like poison into a form of entertainment for ourselves, but we do. And it's important, I think, when we're trying to understand all of these emotional reactions we have to life, to really understand reality the way we actually do it, and not just what we hope to imagine that we are like. Uh, it's a lot like one of the fears that a lot of people deal with. Um, so we talk about some of the specific ones. One of the big categories is fears of other people's opinions. Right? We're afraid of what other people think about us, which is one of the main reasons that public speaking is sometimes considered 
more damaging to us than death. People are more afraid of public speaking than they are of death, some people. Um, there are some polls where it comes in first. Now, why would that be? Does it really mean that more people would rather die than stand up on stage and give a lecture? So, uh, and, and part of it is pretty simple. Part of it is pretty simple, and you can understand it. And I think when I explain this, this idea a little bit, you can understand how to solve the problem in, in, in many other ways. So we all have a habit. And the habit is we really don't want people to see us clearly. We don't want people to see us the way we really are. So we kind of have this image here. It really works well on Facebook, by the way. We have this image here, and you just put this image out here, and you say, this is who I am. This is who I am. Everybody look over here. Don't look over here. Look over here. This is who I am. And we want you to buy that image of ourselves. And we hide things, of course, when we do that. Um, the irony about this situation, and there's a lot of irony. When, I think if you ever get a good explanation of something, there's usually a lot of irony in it. But that's, that's just my personal point of view. But when, the irony of this situation is if you ever get somebody to actually believe this image that you create of yourself, and, and why do you do it? Partially you do it to try to convince yourself that's who you are and you're not really who you really are, but you are this person over here, the better version of yourself. And in order to convince yourself, you have to convince other people. That's what proselytizing is all about, right? So you're, you're out there proselytizing for yourself and you're saying, this is who I really am. Now, somebody actually buys that. They fall in love with this image you've created of yourself, but not who you really are. And you know that. And ironically, when anybody actually buys what you're selling— you no longer can trust their judgment. You know that they're falling for a lie. So if you can't trust their judgment anymore, you can't, it does not give you the psychic satisfaction of the whole game that you started in the first place. And everybody is doing this on a daily basis, and it's totally psychologically unsatisfactory. But we do it anyway because it's crucial to what we're trying to do. We're trying, we, we're afraid that other people's opinions will not be or will, will not be accurate about us. And that's the first thing we fear about. But then sometimes we're even more afraid that they actually will be accurate about us. And we don't want that even more than we don't want them to be inaccurate. So that fear affects public speaking, of course. And how you solve the problem of public speaking, lots of people think, okay, I'm afraid of public speaking. I'll never be able to do it. Most people can be trained to do it. And there's lots of little tricks uh, that people say to psychologically, you know, influence how you feel standing in front of an audience and speaking. But the basic thing is reality. That really solves the problem. If you realize that everybody will be thinking thoughts about you while you're public speaking that don't conform to either who you are, who you want to be, or, or anything like that, um, that the people who are very... Uh, negative will have very negative opinions about you. The people who are overly positive might have two positive opinions about you. And the people in the middle will get a little bit closer, but nobody will really see you the way you actually are. Then you're going to have a lot of problem with public speaking if your desire, if what you desire is for everybody to see you as you want them to see you or for everyone to see you as you actually are, or even, you know, to say, I don't want any of the, that, but I want them to buy my product, you know, if you're trying to sell something. So if your goal in the public speaking is something like that, 
you're going to be afraid because you're never going to succeed with the whole audience. You know, you might succeed with part of the audience, but you'll never succeed with the whole audience. So you'll be getting a lot of negative feedback and you're afraid of that negative feedback. And so you're afraid of public speaking, right? Now, all you have to do to be able to stand up and do this is to say, my goal is not any of those things. My goal is, my, in the case of a philosopher, it's, I just like to inspire people to think slightly differently than they do before, to think about things from a different point of view. And it can guarantee that that's going to happen when you stand up and talk about something. Uh, even if what the reaction is, is I, I've had enough of that, I don't want to talk, I don't want to listen to it anymore. You've still created a, a thinking reaction to the situation. So if you have very modest goals for what you're going to do, then you're not going to be afraid of it. And this applies to a lot of things in life that have nothing to do with public speaking. I'm not suggesting everybody get up and be a public speaker. But because that's a big fear, that's, that's one of the elements of uh, how we can deal with it. Now, there's another category of relatively small fears to talk about. And they, I, those I call witchy thinking. A lot of us have habits of, well, they're kind of magical habits. It's basically magic. We think if we carry uh, a rabbit's foot, that will hit a home run every time we need to. Um, we think that if we think certain words over and over again, before we go off into the public, somebody told us, be strong, be brave. And you sit there and go, be strong, be brave. You are great. And then you go out in public, that that will actually help you. Um, and as long as you believe that it will, um, it, it can have an influence. But that's your belief. As soon as your belief is knocked down, it doesn't have any influence. And this kind of thinking that you can do something really totally unrelated to what you're trying to accomplish, um, whether it's uh, turning a wheel five times before you go out to do something. I mean, people have so many different habits. Cleaning your house, uh, spick and span every five times every day and to make sure you don't get any germs. That kind of thing. All those different things, even though they have some relationship to reality, they're mostly what I call witchy thinking, as I said. They're, they're made up. Uh, there's no rational relationship between what you're doing and the outcome. And basically, that's what worrying is. A lot of people feel that if they worry about something that's going to happen, it will stop it from happening. If I punish myself by being miserable ahead of time, then either the fates or God or the gods or whatever your belief is, they will not, they will say, okay, you've already suffered enough. I am going to let this cup pass from you, right? So people feel that about worrying. They use it as a talisman, as a way to prevent bad things from happening. Now, if you look, step back from it and you watch reality, you'll see that that kind of worrying never changes the outcome or almost never changes the outcome. Sometimes it changes the outcome because you're at home worrying so much you don't leave your home. And I don't mean during the virus crisis either. I just mean in general. If, you, if you're so worried that something bad is going to happen, you never leave your home, well, then something outside your home is not bad. It's not going to happen. But the fact that you never leave your home has created your, your, your life in a way which takes away so much of the pleasure that it's probably worse. And I think a lot of the thinking about fears that will really help is to always understand this one concept that's very commonly understood, which is sometimes the cure is worse than the disease. Sometimes what you're trying to, how you're trying to solve a problem is actually worse than what you're trying to solve in the first place. So we have these different fears of other people's opinion. Um, it has a big influence on what we think about our bodies, for example. We think, 
how can I present my body so that it accurately conveys who I am? I should use makeup, get plastic surgery. I should get lifts if I'm too short. I should, you know, wear flats if I'm too tall. You, you, you try to present your body in a way which is not accurate because you're hoping that the way you present your body, the kind of clothes you wear, all that kind of stuff, will have an influence on what people see when they see you. And the fact is, there will be differences. If you fit the image, if you are, if you are a, uh, a ballerina, then you would wear certain clothes, then everyone knows you're a ballerina. If you are the king, you wear certain clothes so that everyone knows you're the king. If you start going around in casual Friday clothes when you're a king, people won't pick you out as the king until you actually then get married or you know some big ceremony on, on uh, TV for everybody to watch, and your train you know, is carried by 100 people behind you, then people get the idea, well, this guy must be the king because of the clothes, um, and etc. All kinds of people, priests wear certain collars that, that everyone knows they're a priest. And then thieves sometimes wear priest collars in order to try to be trusted when they really aren't to be trusted. So there's a lot of, a lot of really small details going on here. But the basic thing is very interesting, which is we somehow think our bodies can totally represent us. And they really can't. You know, we are personalities. And, and those personalities are what we're projecting in the world, are what we're conveying to the other people in the world. And our bodies are, are, are not really crucial to that process. You can take somebody who, who you know, has had a, say, was in a fire, for example. Uh, and before plastic surgery, which wonderful advances, uh, you know, got better, uh, everyone could tell this person had been in a fire and it was scary to children and so on and so forth. Um, but that fire, unless the fire itself and the damaged uh, body affected the personality strongly, and it often does, but if it didn't, the person is still there. And when that person opens their eyes and smiles and talks, it's still the same person that you knew before. It's just a little harder to see. A uh, little like a car, you know, some people love their cars so much, they, they want that car to do the same thing, to present themselves to the world. Um, so that the car has to be spick and span, it has to be perfectly outlined, it has to be a cool car. I mean, people say cars are sexy, these cars are not sexy, that's boring. So I don't think the cars really think about any of that stuff. So, so it's just an image that we create and present to the world. As long as everyone agrees that's what it means, fine. Okay? So... It's, it's an interesting part of our culture, an interesting part of every human culture, that that has always been done. And of course, if you look through history, all different kinds of clothing have been done. Um, if, if, if people want their women to be totally covered, for example, and that's the only way to do it, don't, uh, you don't really need short skirts to try to convey what it is that, that is going on in a social situation. Anything can do it. You know, the, the, the songs from the 1920s had, you know, uh, different ideas about that, too. And if you, it's just a cultural context. And so what's trying to be stopped in that case can't be stopped. What's trying to be prevented in almost every case where there's these rules can't really be prevented because the basic thing that's going on is our interaction with each other, our social interactions. And that's why, frankly, most people don't like social distancing at all. However, I did think the other day, it was pretty interesting that with the social distancing, everybody's starting to practice it. Uh, it gives us maybe a better idea that back in the Middle Ages, 
when the plagues were, were giving everybody a hard time, that a very large portion of the population became, uh, went to monasteries, moved out. They, that was social, social distancing at, at a long time ago. And, and maybe, maybe that idea was partially the reaction. Fortunately, uh, the COVID-19 crisis does not seem to be enough to send us all the monasteries in a couple of years. Then, then we would all be afraid. You're right. So that's something about our fear of others' opinions and how to deal with those, how to bring them down. A little bit about uh, witchy thinking. So let's talk about a big one. The fear of death. The fear of death obviously influences lots of people all the time. It's something people don't want to think about, they don't want to talk about. And one of the great ironies of that big, big fear in our lives is that there's absolutely no reason with this understanding to be afraid of death. It doesn't make any sense. I'm saying it's the, antici- it's the emotion caused by your anticipation of unhappiness. So the crucial thing about unhappiness, to experience any unhappiness, you have to be there. Right? You have to be alive. You have to be there. Your mind has to be there. So there are really only two possibilities about death. One is that your body is where your mind comes from. That's it. And so when your body dies, you're not there. So if your body dies and you don't exist anymore, you cannot feel any unhappiness. You can't feel any happiness. You can't feel any experience at all. And so there's no reason to anticipate that you're going to be unhappy when you're dead. Because what you should be anticipating is that you will have no emotions whatsoever, and so it's irrelevant. And so there's really no reason to be afraid of death. Now, on the other hand, what's the other possibility? The other possibility is that you actually still do exist, that your mind and your body are not the same thing, and so your mind still exists. Now, if you're afraid of that, it's because of whatever your belief system is about what's supposed to happen after that time. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little while. But Basically, if you like your personality and you still exist after you die, you should be fine. There's nothing to worry about. There's no reason to anticipate any more unhappiness than just before that. So the anticipation that death is going to cause unhappiness does not make any sense, even though it's one of our biggest fears. Now, there are other things involved here. For example, what I just said uh, about that you continue to exist, you might be afraid of your continued existence. Certainly, a lot of people who want to commit suicide would not like to find out that after they commit suicide, they still exist. That would would make them unhappy, right? And so it's very important, I think, for us to understand this as clearly as we can, because if we minimize our fears about it, you can't get rid of them altogether. But if we realize that there is no point in anticipating unhappiness when it's not going to be experienced, then we can deal with other fears. For example, the fear of the process of dying, which is uncomfortable, the fear of losing your loved ones, you know, other people's deaths, those are all you know, going to cause unhappiness. But our own personal death itself shouldn't cause any unhappiness at all. And so we, don't need, we can set that aside. It's more easy, more easy for us then to deal with other fears. So that's just a very simple version of how you can overcome the fear of death just by thinking about it clearly, with that analysis of why we're afraid. So let's talk about another big issue, um, which relates to the fear of continued existence. We've been scaring ourselves silly for thousands of years about the Dark Lord, Satan, Lord Voldemort, Sauron. You know, we, 
we have this idea, and it goes back to Zoroastrianism and even much further back than that, but Zoroastrianism, uh, which predates uh, uh, at least the Jewish Babylonian captivity in the Iranian area, uh, what, what was then Persia, um, that idea was that there were two equal gods. One was bad and one was good. And, and they were in an eternal fight together. And you, you pick sides. It's not unlike at all, and I'm sure George Lucas knew this, not unlike at all Star Wars with the Force. And there's the dark side of the Force, and then there's the Force. In, in you, which side do you join? Well, part of this whole fear is very ironic to me. Because we, we have this emotional feeling that we're the center of the universe. All children have it. Some adults get over it. Not very many of them. And the reason that we feel that the center of the universe is because that's how we experience life, right? Everything is going on in our own head. We know that there's probably some objective reality, although there have been philosophers who have just said that everything else is an illusion. I'll go into that a little bit later too, maybe. But we have this idea that, that because we're the center of the universe, everybody wants us on their side of the deal, as if they're recruiting their team members, and it would be valuable for them to get us on their team. So we kind of think that there's a recruitment. I mean, that's basically what the story of Job is in the Bible. Is there, which side is Job going to join? You know? um, part of the difficulty of this is that Zoroaster uh, answered by saying that there were two gods, and they were equally eternal, um, one didn't create the other one. The, one of the problems is, you know, there's never a really good explanation of why the good guy created the bad guy to fight against the whole time. So, um, but when we look at this, what we see is something that makes it attractive to us, the, the dark side. What's the dark side that makes it attractive? Power. And one of the great ironies is that power over other people is one of those other illusions that really doesn't exist. There is no such thing as power over another mind. Every two-year-old can prove it by saying no to you. Know? They say no, no, no. Even slaves can say no. And it might cost them their life. Fortunately, most parents don't kill their two-year-olds. But you can say no at any one time because it's your will, your free will. Now, I don't mean by free will here the moral choice and all those other arguments, but you get to make decisions in your life. And nobody can take that away from you. Nobody can do it for you. You can, you can assign it to somebody else and say, here, I'm really bad at making my own decisions. You make them all for me. But that's a choice that you make, and you can take it back at any time. So the irony, as I said, is that no one ever gets power over another mind as far as making decisions go. And that he can manipulate you by playing with your emotions and making you afraid and making you do things in order to avoid physical pain, etc., etc. Certainly, those manipulations go on all the time. That's not real power. It's only manipulation of your emotions. There is no real power. But we want that power. We want that power. And that's why there is an attraction to the stories about the dark side of the world dark side of, of, of our explanations of life, and it's why we have those. Um, as a matter of fact, part of the irony here is that most of the time, if you dig deep in, somewhere in even God's unconsciousness or unconscious the part of the story is that he's a dark lord. He, he's kind of a tyrant king. I just think if you go back and read all the stories, 
3,000 years ago, our ancestors don't seem to have been able to imagine a leader that was not a dark lord, a tyrant king, always doing things to show off their power, to, to irritate people, to make them mad, to make them afraid. Not always, but quite often. Um, so I think in that context, I think uh, inside the context of the religious belief, I think there's an image that uh, Jesus gave that I think is really useful. And it, Jesus, uh, in the uh, Jewish and Christian and Islamic religions, the God is all the same person. No, it's always the same person. So who Jesus calls uh, God the Father is the same person as Allah for Islam and is the same person uh, as the God of Abraham. And what he said was, just imagine what Jesus said, and, and you, can, you can enjoy this image, whether you think of Jesus as God himself, whether you think of, uh, or if you're Islam, if you think of Jesus as a prophet of Allah, or if you're Jewish and you think of Jesus as just some nice Jewish boy who didn't get it right. So in any of those cases, this image is very useful to lower your fear because basically he said, God is like the best father that you know, only 70 times seven better than that. Okay? That's not a scary image. Yes, generally, fathers are kind of tyrant kings at times, you know, but most of the time they're not. Uh, my own father was most of the time very, very nice. Occasionally he had a, a temper. Um, uh, he had 12 children. Uh, that's a pretty good circumstance to lose your temper some of the time. Um, and, and when he did lose his temper, he would say to, to us, you know, he'd, he'd say, come down on Saturday morning, having been woken up by rambunctious kids running all over the living room, and say, you know, if you don't stop this, I'm going to make your bottom as red as the sunset. Oh, that was a, one of his threats. Not too severe, um, but certainly we, we tried to avoid it. Um, but unfortunately for him, he didn't realize uh, that in the 1950s, it, we all played cowboys and Indians all the time, and one of his threats was, if you don't stop doing that, I'm going to send you back to the reservation. It's obviously a very politically incorrect uh, thing to say, but at the time, it didn't work at all as a threat because, as far as boys were concerned, going back to the reservation sounded like a really good deal. So it was a threat that actually was a reward. It's a very important part of the way I think about things um, is to understand that because a lot of threats can be understood to be rewards. And a lot of rewards are actually threats. Um, if you're told that you have to sing hymns for eternity um, as your reward, you're not going to try too hard to get there if you don't like singing hymns. If you like singing hymns, great. You know, you're going to try hard. So other people's imagination of what a heaven is, you know, is, is really problematic if it doesn't affect your own desires towards something. And, and therefore, you, you're afraid whether you think you're going to get there or not get there. So I think within the context of, of all of these stories and, 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 and explanations that have come down to us for thousands of years uh, from our ancestors, I think that we, we should look at it in the context of understanding what motivated them, um, how they understood their situation, how they talked about it, and, and what's implied by the stories that they told. Because that has a big effect on what we take from it now. And that's one of the reasons why I say that you can send a man to hell, but you can't make him suffer. 
You can put somebody into a very difficult position, but you cannot make him suffer unless he accepts the terms of the game. Uh, Jack London has a great uh, novel about that. Um, and and it's, it's something that minds can do. It's, a, again, this independence of each of us. We, we don't really realize how strong that is. We don't like to realize how strong it is because we, we're social beings. We like to be together with other people. We're afraid of being all alone, all by ourselves. But the fact is that every individual mind experiences things individually in their own minds. Um, and and I, by that, I don't mean that the objective world doesn't exist. I really think the objective world exists. Um, there's a, a theory in, in India. Uh, Shankara was uh, behind it. Uh, it was there before that, but he did a really good job of explaining it logically. Um, and that is that if you have this idea of perfection and you keep pushing the idea of perfection and trying to explain what's going on, you end up with an idea that there's a static uh, universal mind um, and that that's all that really exists. Everything else is just an illusion. But the problem with that theory is that it doesn't explain why the illusion is being experienced. It doesn't explain why our minds individually are experiencing an illusion if that's an illusion itself. Unless you say that that universal mind, that oneness that, that lots of people talk about, unless you say that that oneness has a, an extremely severe case of multiple personality disorder. And, and that's really the only way that you can explain that idea rationally. Now, our pursuit of perfection blinds us to those uh, ideas because almost every idea, you know, is like a two-sided coin. You know, you, you don't look at the other side because it doesn't look good. Um, so, by not having a clear conceptual framework for what we're doing, I mean, we, we really are in this alone, um, and, but we're all working together. And, I, I, and by not having a clear conceptual framework, we really don't know how to play the game. And we've been doing a good job for the last couple thousand years trying to figure out pieces of it. Um, but let me, let me give you an analogy for, I think, what we're up to and why I, I feel the way I do about, about these ancient explanations. One analogy would be baseball. If you, if you didn't know the rules of baseball and you were out watching games and you were trying to deduce the rules of baseball, how many baseball games would you have to go to in order to figure out what the rules of baseball were? Thousands. Thousands of games if you were a very good you know, analyst. I mean, it wouldn't take too long to come up with uh, three strikes and you're out, you know, four balls, you get to go to first base. Um, but to put all the different details together, all the different positions, all the different roles that people play, and get all the rules down, it could take thousands of games. And even then, you wouldn't know what the infield fly rule was. The infield fly rule happens so rarely that just every couple thousand games, it happens. And you'd say, why did that happen? Why, why did that happen? That doesn't follow any of the rules or any of the patterns I've seen before. So I think in analyzing our lives, you know, there's lots of infield fly rules we may never figure out. But it's like trying to figure out a puzzle. The universe is like a puzzle with decillions of pieces, a jigsaw puzzle with decillions of pieces, and they're all in motion. And how are we ever going to solve that problem? By the time we get a little piece over here done, it's, it's moving over here and we're not going to get it. So that puzzle of the whole universe is impossible for one mind to do, and that's what lots of people say. But 
there is another puzzle. And that puzzle is not moving. And that puzzle is the ideas, the patterns in what everybody does. Like the, in, in terms of physics, it's the rule of, of uh, the law of gravity, uh, the laws of motion from Newton, those kind of things. They don't ever change, or even pi. Pi is exactly the relationship between the diameter and the circumference of a circle. It's theoretical. We want a precise answer to that question, and we never get it. It's 3.14159, keep going on, and there is no end to it. But we can calculate it precisely enough to be able to make calculations that are practical all the time. And that's why I like that image of pi inside of a circle for really clear philosophical ideas, where it's backed up by math, but math did not lead the way. I think it's hard for math to lead the way. It's a very good way to prove something. But leading the way is problematic. For example, in the case of pi, if you had no idea that there was a concept like pi, and you were dealing with circles and diameters all the time and trying to calculate them for different practical reasons in your agriculture, um, you might begin to say, oh, there's some kind of number here that seems to be almost always the same. You might notice it in cones, in cylinders, trying to figure out how much uh, you could fill a cylinder in terms of volume, in terms of cone, um, in terms of circles and, and the circumference. But if you could measure the circumferences and the diameter and see that relationship showing up all the time, there's a number about 3.142. There's a number about 3.14. There's a number about 3.1415. And, and, and you begin to say, that's always about the same number, that relationship. You would never get the answer trying to get there by mathematics. You'd keep approximating the answer, but the only clear answer is when you say, oh, it is the exact relationship between the diameter and the circumference of a circle. And we know what a circle is by definition. And so that is like a perfect analogy for me for how we look at life. And it's also a very good example of what, uh, to me, Plato was talking about when he talked about the eternal ideas. He talked about those ideas um, as if they were real, as if they were personal in a way. That was the better world, uh, the world of these ideas. Uh, and, and I think he was just emotionally coming to the idea of a concept, something that we have now perfectly clearly. This concept in pi of the relationship between the diameter and the circumference of a circle is a perfect example of a concept that's perfectly clear. We can apply it in practical world, but we cannot precisely define it mathematically. And we have a lot of things that we know. The 20th century was so good at science that, that a prejudice developed that unless you could measure it, we couldn't know it. And everything is irrelevant if we can't know it. But all of our emotions, all of our personal lives, all of our personality, they're like pi. You, you, you cannot know precisely, but you can still see the patterns. And it's extremely useful to see the patterns, as I've given several of them already um, today. But there are plenty more, uh, and there's not that many patterns. So my analogy for the patterns in, in life throughout the whole universe uh, would be like a, about a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle instead of a decillion piece that's always moving. And it's always the same because it really um, doesn't move. It doesn't get influenced by the changes. It's what stays the same. And, and that's a really good definition uh, for eternity, by the way. And that is anything that's uninfluenced by the process of change, by the continuum of change. But to go to that, that puzzle, 
Uh, imagine that that puzzle was like uh, a Swiss uh, Alps valley with a lake in the middle and mountains around it and a little town along the side and a little forest. And it was a perfectly sunny day and there was perfect reflection in the lake of the mountains and the sky and the town. And that's what it looks like. That's what life looks like. That's why I think Shankara thought that the whole thing was an illusion because he focused on the part that was an illusion. Lots of things in life are an illusion. They don't look the way they really are. We think that the stars are close to us and then we figure out they're really, really far away. Um, we, we, we misunderstand distances. Everyone thought the earth was flat for a while. Um, people understood from ancient Greece on, most people that were educated, that it wasn't flat, that it was a sphere. But that was because they, ancient Greeks, figured out that there are anomalies that show that it probably is a sphere that we're on and not flat. Even though most of the evidence, 97% of the evidence is that it was flat, but experientially, but mathematically, and shadows at noon, et cetera, et cetera, show that this is probably a, a sphere that we're on, uh, besides the fact that eclipses sort of gave it away as well. So once we figure out those anomalies and can figure out a clear idea, we can get a clear conception of what's going on. Now, what does that have to do with fear? We can minimize fear by understanding things much, much clearer than we do. And that's really the crucial part of this understanding. It's not, if, for example, you're, you're very, very smart, take, take Buddha, Jesus, a bunch of artists, Plato, the, the people who've been thinking about all these things, one of the things that helped me try to figure out what the patterns were was when I was in my 20s working on this, I, I thought of human personality as a bell curve distribution. So there's a bell curve distribution. At one end are the psychopaths and the sociopaths. In the middle is almost everybody. And at this end are, are Jesus and Buddha and, and etc. The people who were always trying to help us out, basically, and, and come up with better ideas. The great irony that I saw in this distribution was that the psychopaths and the sociopaths had the best opinion of the human race. They looked at the human race and, and they looked from here and saw everybody and they said, Ah, these people are too naive. They're too good to be true. It's very easy to take advantage of them. Uh, they don't know that it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, so uh, they're lost. But they're very nice, but they're lost as a result because the world is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. That's their perception. If you ask somebody in the middle, what do you think of the human race? Oh, everybody's all right. Everyone's got weaknesses, but everybody's kind of all right. You know? And if you ask anybody at this end, you know, what is it that you think about the human race? They all say, well, they need 10 commandments. They need a 10-step program. They need a 12-step program. They need, you know, to, to, to get interested in ideas. They need to live differently than they do. Here's a utopia for them, that kind of thing. And the irony for me is, is what I call the imagination's horizon. You can, whatever your feelings are about life, whatever your desires are, your imagination projects out from there and says, this is where we can go, right? So your imagination's horizon is how far can you see? And ironically, the further out you go, the further you can see. So the people at this end were looking out in this direction, away from humanity, and telling humanity, what I'd really like you to do is move over here. Change your personalities, move over here. But our personalities do not change very easily, right? And so we really don't want to do that. In fact, even those guys didn't want to go much further than they already were.
So uh, that idea, the imagination's horizon, is an important way that I understood this so that I could explain that the patterns, that what was common, for example, in the case of fear, is every one of those minds, from the bulk of humanity to the sociopath to the high end of humanity, all the way down, all of those minds have to have the same pattern in what they do. And that's why I went to these kind of abstract ideas. Fear is the emotion caused by the anticipation of unhappiness. Right. Now, one other thing, and this is about worrying. We have a relationship with our own imaginations, right? Our own imaginations are there. They, they create stories. They do all kinds of things. But basically what they're there is to tell us where to go next. It's our imaginations that create that image of ourselves where we, what we really want to be that we're trying to get everyone else to buy, for example. And it's our relationship with our imagination that makes a big difference in how worried we are, how fearful we are about life. Because if we look at that imagination, what we're imagining, and we always come up short, we can always be afraid that we're not good enough. Always. And therefore we worry. We worry that everybody else will notice we're not good enough. We worry ourselves that we're not good enough. And it's all because we look ahead with our imaginations and say, this is where I want to go next. And this is my horizon. But the irony is, no matter how far you move along in that direction, the horizon moves even further out. And therefore, the people that can be the most worried and most anxious will be the best people. And guess what? That happens. The people who are some of the most productive people that kind of thing, not best in any other sense, but, but most productive from a social point of view, from a human race point of view, the ones that influence history and everything, have been some of the most anxious people because they never think they're good enough because their imagination is so good, they move forward. Leonardo wasn't that anxious, but you know, he's always thinking of where else to go next, where else to go next, what, what else can I figure out, what else can I figure out, um, and, and not being 100% comfortable that he was good enough. That's the irony of our relationship with our imagination. We have really turned our imaginations into a conscience rather than a tool to move ahead. And if it's a conscience telling us how we're bad, we're going to be worried all the time. And if we just recognize, oh, that's, it's like my to-do menu. It's, it, it's something that I can do. It's something I can move forward with. And I can either say yes to that or not. And that's, that's really a totally different relationship with your imagination. And with that different relationship, your worries go way down. So one big thing would be to do that. And I'll, I'll, I'll say one thing about one of the other characters at this end, Buddha. So Buddha came up with a conclusion that desire was the source of all suffering. Now, I'm obviously disagreeing with that. I'm saying that the fear, our unhappiness, is caused by not fulfilling a desire. Not the desire itself, but not fulfilling the desire. And the solution to that is to be very intelligent about what you desire. And one of the ironies of it is, is that the purpose of life for Buddha then was to reach nirvana where all this had came, came to an end, to reach that perfect state of mind and everything would come to an end. But the great irony is that that is also a desire. A desire to get to nirvana is also a desire. So that also should cause some suffering. So desire itself, you know, we, we beat up on it a lot uh, for a large, large number of different reasons. Uh, a lot of religions are mad at desire for different particular reasons because they don't like this desire or that desire. But the great irony, of course, is that every single one of the rewards that's offered is a kind of happiness. 
Either nirvana is supposed to be happy or heaven's supposed to be happy. If it wasn't going to be happy, people wouldn't go for it. So to me, part of the, part of the overall scheme of things uh, is inherent in what's going on. And I think whenever you find rewards and punishments involved in an explanation, that it's not an accurate explanation. It's a cultural phenomenon. Because we always use rewards and punishments to try to adjust other people to what we want them to be, right? And, and uh, if you have a goal, a reward, that is the reward for all of life, this is what life's purpose is, it's to reach this reward. When you get that reward, you've satisfied it, whether that's nirvana, heaven, any, being a billionaire, anything, any temporary goal. When you get there, your life no longer has any purpose because the purpose of life has been fulfilled. So you no longer have anything to work for. You no longer have any reason to be alive if that's the purpose of life. On the other hand, if the, the meaning of life or the purpose of life is inherent in everyday life, then, then it can go on forever. You know, one generation after another after another, Nobody will ever satisfy that goal because it's inherent in the way we express it. And that inherent thing is our pursuit of happiness, our avoidance of, of suffering, our avoidance of pain and unhappiness. And that's why we have developed these emotions, passion and fear, that are there telling us that what we're doing is anticipating either happiness or unhappiness. So I hope that uh, those few observations uh, will help you in your own avoidance of pain and avoidance of fear and minimizing your fears and maybe a little bit of happiness. And uh, now I'm going to take a couple of questions. So one question is, where does fear originate? So fear originates in our minds as an emotion in reaction to our anticipation, again, that something is going to make us unhappy. So there's all kinds of things that can make us unhappy. And as I said, the way you desire, what you desire is going to change that. It's going to change how many things can make you unhappy? How many things you can anticipate will make you unhappy? Uh, here's another question. Who was your favorite teacher at St. Joe's? Oops. Uh, this must be from one of my high school classmates in Wisconsin. Uh, let's see. My, my favorite teacher at St. Joe's. Uh, probably my math teacher, Sister Quintilis, Sister Cecilia. Um, although there was another teacher, a brand new teacher, Marianne Brandt, um, who taught us world religions my sophomore year. And she covered it all very well. Very, she was very young. She was probably only 21 or 22 when she taught us. Um, and at the end of the, of the year, um, I asked her, I said, if, if what you said about Hinduism and Islam and everything is true, how, why do you still stay a Catholic? And she had a very honest answer. She said, I was born a Catholic, so I'm staying. If I was born a Hindu, I'd probably be a Hindu. Um, and I think that's the answer almost everybody has about this. Um, and that was an extremely helpful answer because that's, at that time, I, I remember that I had come to a conclusion at the end of that class that, that all those ideas were there trying to inspire people to be virtuous, um, but that they didn't work because uh, almost nobody was becoming virtuous as a result of, of those ideas. Mostly people, people became more afraid of different things, although not only. And certainly some virtue was created um, by these ideas, you could say maybe they were 80% effective, um, but the underlying fears that are our ancient fears uh, got in the way. So one of my conclusions about that was that, uh, you know, maybe 10 years later than that, was that religions sort of um, 
hold within them our noblest ideals, but they're encrusted with our most ancient fears. And it'd be great if we could unload those fears. Um, that's why I use the, the lightning uh, picture, because that's one of our ancient fears. Um, if you like the ancient Greeks so much, why are you wearing a suit instead of a toga? All right, well, I'm not fully recovered from having been a lawyer. Uh, and besides, John Belushi ruined everybody's idea about togas. And what about the fear we may have about the impact that our death may have on loved ones? The fear of the pain others may experience or feel? Very good question. Absolutely true. We, we, we are afraid of both our loved ones dying before we do. We worry about dying young. We worry about dying old. We worry about dying first. We worry about dying last. We worry about all the different relationships because we, one thing that's common to almost all cultures is that every culture cherishes your group of loved ones. And, and, and there's lots of different ways of doing that. Um, uh, lots of cultures say there's only one way of doing it, but since they all have different rules about it, in the end, in this uh, multicultural uh, world that we live in, we have opened up all kinds of ways. It's, it's friendship. Uh, on a deep level is what it is. And it's really, really uh, one of the most important things in our lives, of course. So how can you avoid the fear? Well, you can think about it. And you can say, in what way do I anticipate this is going to make me unhappy? Well, of course, it's going to make you unhappy that the person you love is gone. But the fear you have ahead of time is going to slightly ruin the happiness that you have at the time you're with the person. So you can kind of tamp it down a little bit by saying, I should be happy until it happens, and then I'll be sad. Right? We, it, it's impossible to con get your desires in a way that you can enjoy friendship and still not be unhappy when they come to an end. It, it, it doesn't work. But I think this is, this is another thing from Harry Potter, one of, one of the themes. If you if you don't figure out that pursuing power instead of pursuing friendship is the way to be happy, you've missed something really big in life. Because one, power is a delusion. Two, friendship is not a delusion. Friendship is, is and, and there's no perfect friendships, but friendship is the thing that makes our individual lives, even though we still think of ourselves as the center of the universe, um, much more enjoyable, much more uh, lighthearted. So, that's one way of dealing with it. Another way, your, your, your specific question about the impact your death is going to have on the loved ones. Well, you cannot prevent your death. I mean, you can be healthy. You can try to be healthier and therefore try to live longer that way. That's one thing. From a financial point of view, you can get life insurance to calm down how that impact is going to be too. But that's not the fundamental part of, of, of this. And that only takes care of small parts of it. In a way, you're saying that your loved one can't live without you. And I think it's really, really useful to realize that that's just not true. We feel that we want to be indispensable in life in lots of different ways with lots of other people. But the reality is that we're only indispensable to ourselves. Nobody else can jump into our mind and make our decisions. It just doesn't happen. And so we're indispensable to ourselves, but we can be very valuable to other people. Right? And so it's it's an important distinction to, to make in life and to not feel that you're indispensable 
Because what you want to be is as valuable as you can be to their happiness. And if you make yourself almost indispensable, never really indispensable, but almost indispensable, then you kind of get in, a, in the way of their happiness because you're telling them, if you're not with me, you'll never be happy. And so you should be, you know, it should be much more, whenever you're with me, you'll be happier. And when you're not with me, um, you know, you'll still be able to be happy. And I know that you'll be sad and I'll be sad if you leave first. But, but that this should not overwhelm the pursuit of happiness, um, regardless of whether we no longer exist or whether we do exist. I mean, that's a totally another question. When I go back to that puzzle that I was saying about the, about the uh, Swiss lake, if we, if we just focus on the town, we can figure out what our, that's like our personalities. We can figure out what the patterns in our personality are, regardless of whether we get the rest of the picture clear. You can get pieces of a puzzle clear first. And I think the puzzle about the patterns in our personality is one of the easier pieces of that puzzle to get in place. And it doesn't even matter whether the illusion is there or whether the sky is real and whether the mountains are real and whether the forest is part of our lives or not part of our lives. As long as we understand that town, we've got 95% of what we need in life to be happy. So thinking about it slightly differently and, and, and not, not wanting to be the only thing that can make a person happy, to be indispensable to them, helps. Because you, you really don't, I mean, we, we kind of want that, obviously. Uh, but is it wise for us to want it? No. We should just, and, and it doesn't mean you have to get rid of it. You just tone it down a little bit. Um, many books, articles, lectures on improving your handling of fear use the superlative eliminate fear. You choose minimize. Yes. Because... Fear is like prostitution. You know, you can never get rid of it. And if you try to get rid of it, you cause a bigger problem. You cause you have a cure that's worse than the disease. The closest that's ever been gotten that I can tell anyway uh, to eliminating prostitution was in under communist Chinese rule. They really, really tamped down on it a lot. Um, and and what did it do? It caused so much more fear, so many more problems. You know it's a good thing to try to minimize our social problems, absolutely. But to try to eliminate them is, is to ask too much. Um, it's like I said, you have a, an imagination's horizon. How far can you see? And that's what you should be doing uh, in terms of changing the way you are because your personality is, is based upon all your experiences, the conclusions that you've reached about life. I, I talked a little bit about uh, religious beliefs. Uh, beliefs don't change reality at all. Whether we believe in God or don't believe in God does not change whether he exists or not. He's not Tinkerbell. You know? if, if we believe in him, that doesn't make him exist. And if we don't believe him, that doesn't make him disappear if he does exist. And if we believe he has certain attributes, but he doesn't have those attributes, that doesn't change what his personality is really like, if he has a personality. So that's an important part of reality. You know, People believed for a long time the earth was flat, did not make the earth flat. We still have societies, flat earth societies, who are hoping that the earth is still flat and that the rest of it is a conspiracy theory to make us all believe that it's a sphere. You know, but we can, we can allow people to believe that as long as they don't uh, kill us if we don't believe it. You know, as long as they behave according to the rules, what difference does it make what they believe about life, really? So it's important, I think, to understand that about belief systems, that they're not they're not changing our reality. And I think as soon as we 
as soon as we feel that way about all the cultures in, on our planet and say every one of those cultures was an attempt to get a consensus about how to live life, how to be happier, um, and, and they all have histories. There's a lot of good historians that have written about why this culture developed this particular way and so on and so forth. As long as we agree on certain basics, we can get along. And I think that's one of the great things about the experiment in America for the last couple hundred years. It's proven we can do a little bit better than before. We're not doing perfectly, but we're doing better. Ah, uh, here's a question from New York. Even after many decades, I still wake up from nightmares that I will never get to use my ATR credits. How do I minimize that fear? Uh, first, life is just not fair. And financially, it's really not fair. So we'll all be cheated in life. That's the way it is. We'll all be cheated at some point or another financially. And the way to deal with it is there's all kinds of ways to deal with it. The way I dealt with that is very simple. I lived in New York and uh, in the 80s um, and, and early 90s. And it was I, I got robbed at least 15, 20 times, something like that. So I developed a way of dealing with that. Um, for those of you who are old enough, you remember the, the cartoon show Rocky and Bullwinkle. In the cartoon show Rocky and Bullwinkle, there was a, a bad guy who was Boris Badenov, which is a nice joke off of Boris Gudenov, uh, a Russian guy. So Boris Badenov. And what did he do? He, he went back and forth carrying a sign saying, unfair to local 13, and then he flipped it over, and it said, villains, thieves, and scoundrels union. So I think as long as you're living with human beings, you can assume that a certain percentage are villains, thieves, and scoundrels. And if in your annual budget you say 5% of my money and, and goods, I'll probably go to villains, thieves, and scoundrels, and I won't get upset until at least 5% is gone this year, you'll, you'll be able to deal with it because it'll happen. And, uh, you know, I, I, I suppose that's how the birds deal with blue jays, too, coming in and stealing from them. But obviously, uh, that doesn't change the idea that we're really attached to our uh, objects that get stolen. But if you can deal with it in some kind of uh, visual way, and I think the same thing true with any other financial fraud, including the one that you mentioned. And let's see. Oh, are there any silver linings in this virus crisis? I think there's lots of silver linings in the virus crisis. Uh, I'll just mention two. One is realizing that the economy is not as important as our lives, that we're willing to sacrifice the economy for our lives. I mean, people used to you know, build bridges and so on and allow a certain amount of people to die. The, the Great Wall of China was built at the cost, and, and, the, and the canal there, at the cost of millions of lives, and societies have been built uh, at many times at the cost of millions of lives. Um, the pyramids, I'm sure, cost lives. So we're, we're getting someplace by saying that uh, we, and I think it's because we're rich, uh, but as we get richer and richer, uh, each individual life becomes more important. I think that's a great thing, and this is a nice dry run for that. Uh, the second thing that I think would be useful is that there might be a little less xenophobia, which is another form of fear, of fear of the other cultures. Because now, uh, you know, we like in America to think we're number one and, and that we're on top of everything all the time and we're the best, et cetera, et cetera. But other cultures feel the same way. Um, and it's, I think, very valuable in the current crisis to see that there are dozens of labs all over the world working on the, uh, uh, the uh, vaccine for the virus and for medicines for this virus. And we are going to have a much better situation having dozens of different solutions to be tested against each other and see which one works the best before we use it. And so we are very happy that this knowledge is spread everywhere. Um, and nobody will mind using uh, the best vaccine if the best vaccine was, was uh, invented in Africa or in South America or in Australia or New Zealand or China or Japan. Nobody will mind. 
It's whatever is the best. And that's one of the great advantages of having uh, science continually growing. It's never going to probably be the biggest part of any society. But the more we have that, the better off we are. And one last question here. Well, this one's from Paris. Uh, George, I am not afraid of dying. I'm just afraid of getting old. How do you minimize that fear? Okay, so that's good. Um, if, you, if you are afraid of getting old, you just have to think of what the alternative is. Okay? See, anticipating that you're going to get old is an important part of the process because it really has to do with your desires, what makes you unhappy because you're anticipating unhappiness. If you're going to say, I still want all my desires to be the same as they were when I was 20, you're going to be very upset. But the whole purpose of desire is to produce happiness for you. So if you change your desires, you will change what makes you happy because you're basing it on why you have desires. So as you get older, you change your desires. And that should help you be happier. So I hope that was a little helpful. Thank you very much for listening. So ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.